0: Before you start listening to this podcast, we've got a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, which will give you full access to everything on our website, and we'll also throw in a free £20 Amazon voucher. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome to Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. And this week, my guest is the writer Blake Gotnick, who has just published a monumental and highly regarded new biography of Andy Warhol called Warhol, A Life as Art. Blake, welcome. Now, Thanks, Sam. Your book begins, well, kind of in medias race, but it begins with Andy's first death, an account of the time immediately after he's just been shot by Valerie Solanas. Can you tell me why you started there? I mean, what was it about
1: that moment that seemed to you to make it so pivotal? Well, certainly the moment is pivotal in Andy's life, but I have to admit that it was also the result of just good fortune when it came to writing the biography. I had the good luck to visit that surgeon who was still alive at that time. He still died. The surgeon who saved Andy's life. And I visited him with a fabulous American surgeon called John Ryan, so I actually got to hear these two great surgeons talking about the operation. And I heard every detail of how Andy was cut into and how they sewed him up again and all the organs that were hit. And that was just so exciting for me to hear in the interview that I figured it would be exciting for, the, for my readers as well. And it just seemed inevitable to begin with that really dramatic moment in in Warhol's life, one of the most dramatic moments that you could imagine.
0: In a pretty dramatic life. How did that moment change him? You know, was there a sort of before-Valerie and after-Valerie Andy?
1: Well, that is certainly the standard line. That's the cliché. One of the things I discovered in researching the book is that the standard line that Andy becomes a scaredy cat after being shot, that he retrenches, that he, he moves away from the avant-garde, from the underground and becomes a 70s new conservative. Well, that had already begun before he was shot. Really, it had begun already in January of 1968 and he shot in June. So he was already moving away from standard 60s counterculture before he was shot. And the shooting really just sort of completed that that trend in his life. Uh, Made it obvious and made it, in a sense, the necessary narrative for Warhol to to invest in. Because one of the things that you see in researching Warhol's life is that whenever there was an almost cliche-ridden or obvious narrative that he could follow, he would do just that. So I, I like to talk about the moment that he portrays Marilyn for the first time. And he talked about that as having happened just after she committed suicide, or she died of a drug overdose. But there's really no evidence that that's right. He may have begun the Marilins beforehand, and then decided, oh, this story is too good not to tell. I have to pretend that I began the Marilins after she died, because that would be such a lovely narrative trope.
0: Well, he was this extraordinary, fabulous, and Maybe we should start by talking a bit about, you know, little Andrew Warhola back in Pittsburgh. A sort of origin that through his life he did quite a lot to obscure and obfuscate and change. I mean, how much was the child father to the man?
1: Well, I'm a biographer, so I'm going to say, of course, that it was central that you have to understand Andrew Warholer to understand Andy Warhol. But I think even more with Warhol than with other figures, it's really it's really true. He came from a really impoverished background. He was a Carpatho-Rusin, which made him one of the stranger ethnicities in Pittsburgh. His parents were dreadfully poor, at least in his early life. And then he, from a very early age, was clearly not your average Pittsburgh male. He displayed signs of effeminacy. When other kids were playing baseball, he was drawing pictures of flowers and butterflies. So clearly the homosexuality that becomes evident in his you know, late teenage years and his adulthood starts having hints early on. And that, I think, really, really affects everything he does as a human being as, and as an artist. The outsider status he had, double outsider status that he had from being both working class and Carpatho-Rusin and then homosexual, that all shapes who he is later. Being an outsider... To the world at large, I think it's really central to understanding Andy and his art.
0: Yeah, there's also, you know, as a teenager, I remember listening to Lou Reed and John Kale's Songs for Dreller a lot. And there's that line in there, in the song Small Town, where he says the thing about a small town is you hate it and you know, it, know you have to leave. What did, did he have that sort of feeling towards his origins?
1: I, I'm afraid to say yes. He only very rarely went back to Pittsburgh. And he's certainly on the record of saying that it was the worst place he ever could imagine. So, so I'm afraid he wasn't kind to Pittsburgh. And he had a certain distance from his, his Pittsburgh family. I mean, he was fond of them, clearly, but he'd come so far from where he, they were that I think there was a certain gap in understanding. And until very recently, his family refused to acknowledge that he was a homosexual, that he had been a homosexual. And that must have been painful for him. One of the things I dwell on in the book, one of the things I'm proud of, in the book is the extent to which I was able to really track what it meant to be homosexual in the 1940s in Pittsburgh and in America in general. And it was ferociously hard. It's just hard to imagine now just what it was to be gay in Pittsburgh in the 1940s. It must have been just terrifying. The police there formed a special moral squad. Well, it was called a moral squad, but the only morality they cared about was homosexuality. And it went out of its way just when Warhol was coming out as an adult homosexual to attack homosexuals in in every possible way. Within a week of the squad's creation, they'd shot two gay men. So growing up gay in Pittsburgh was terrifying. And yet Warhol, always culturally courageous, was willing to wear white nail polish to be really pretty out in a Pittsburgh where there was just no room for that, where that was, I hate to say it, but close to suicidal. And yet he had the courage to do it.
0: How much, I mean, you know, obviously
1: he didn't conceal
0: his gayness. He was out about his sexuality. But his, a lot of his persona, you know, a lot of what you deal with in your book is this creation of what you at one point call his vampiric persona, the vampire, the Cinderella. You know, he was a sort of self-curated artefact. He, you know, as much as he exposed himself, he also lied and confabulated. And, you know, I mean, what role do you think his persona played? played and how consciously was he building it?
1: I think he was building it remarkably consciously. We all build personas, but I think Warhol, not surprisingly as a great artist, built it more self consciously and more impressively than the rest of us do. And he built many different personas. That's the thing that matters to me in the book. I like to say that the book is as much about how Warhol built those personas than it is an account of the personas or an attempt to get at the real Warhol inside, which is virtually impossible, I think. But we can watch all of those different personas being created. There is a persona in college where he's extremely limp-wristed deliberately and really exploring what it is to be very out and very campy. And then there's a persona in the 50s where he starts wearing the latest in posh clothing, posh suits, where he really is quite a different Warhol than the one we think of from the 1960s. He's, he's very much part of what they called the window dresser crowd in Manhattan. And then of course, from about 1965, it comes quite late really, we get the sunglass wearing Warhol in the black leather jacket, which weirdly has sort of taken over our entire mental image of Warhol, though it's only really one chapter in his self-creation. And it was very deliberate and had really very little to do with who he really was. You know, he he barely answered reporters' questions, and when he did, he answered them in a really goofy, naive kind of way. Well, that wasn't who he really was at all. He was ferociously sophisticated, ferociously intelligent as well, as many of his closest friends always said. And yet he portrayed himself as this kind of ridiculous naive.
0: The business of his persona as being shy You know, there was this kind of idea that he was shy, this idea he was kind of wimpy. I mean, one of the things that surprised me that he was not only very sociable and very, well, we knew he was sociable in certain respects, but that actually talkative and sought company rather than simply seeking to be there but aloof. And also, you know, he was like this incredibly pumped kind of bodybuilder. Uh,
1: yes, that I have to it was a surprise even for me when I was interviewing people and then going through his records very early on before going to the gym was something anyone did. He was going to a gym. We have the exact record of, of several of his visits with Jim. Funnily enough, he visited a gym that was miles away from where he lived. And you've got to think that he wanted to sort of hide the fact he was doing that. Lou Reed himself said that he once sort of had a, uh, I guess, a playful wrestling match with Andy. And Andy managed to pin him completely to put him in an arm hold. <laughs> Another person that he worked out with said Andy could do more pull-ups than anyone else he knew. And there's a lovely video from very late, from the 80s yet, that shows Andy doing doing push-ups. And he starts out by saying, oh, I guess I won't be able to do any of these And then I can't remember, I counted, I think he did 42 push-ups in a row. (laughs) So skinny little Andy was not at all the real Andy. And there's one photograph of him from the 1950s where he's sitting on a bed wearing just a little skimpy t-shirt and underwear. And he's got these really muscly legs that are quite hairy as well. I mean, he looks really built. So, yeah, he he was an amazing obfuscator of who he really was. He was amazingly good at pretending to be someone he wasn't. But why was he? I mean, this is kind of, maybe
0: you can't get to the real Andy, but you'd wonder why such an obfuscator? Because you you might think, look, here's this guy who was growing up gay when at time it was extraordinarily hard to be gay. So he'd conceal that and create a persona that was not gay. Whereas he's
1: created a persona that concealed almost everything about himself apart from his sexuality. And even that he rarely came out and said, yes, I'm gay. He was never kind of gay activist, or at least not in public. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think it all boils down to sort of the central theme in my book, which is that Andy wanted to be a great artist and he wanted above all to be the most interesting artist he could be. And he simply realized that self-creation was one of the central artistic acts of the later 20th century. And one of the things I did a lot of research on was how the cutting edge avant-garde of the 1960s, artists that most people have never even heard of, the artists of the Fluxus movement, a guy called Alberto Greco, an Argentine, they were all talking about how they wanted to do away with the notion of the art object. They wanted to do away with any border between art and life. They wanted art and life to be the same thing. And I think that Warhol was really very self-consciously aware of that trend and decided that self-creating was one of the most important and interesting gestures he could do as an artist. And after all, in 1965, he declares object-making pretty much dead. He decides he's going to be a filmmaker only. He says painting is dead. So he really is aware of the move towards pure conceptualism in art. And I think his self-creation is a, a kind of closet gesture of conceptualism.
0: Can you talk a bit about his love life? I mean, how close were people, you know, who were involved with him sexually or romantically able to get to him? Did you have a sense that that there was eventually he'd take off the wig and take off the shades and there'd be, you know, somewhere in there, the real Andy?
1: Well, I did manage, to my infinite surprise, to track down his first official boyfriend. He may have had sexual adventures before then, but the person who seems to be his first boyfriend named Carlton Willers... And he certainly, you know, Andy was not a particularly normal person and wasn't, you know, your average boyfriend, but he wasn't a freak. I mean, he certainly was in love with Carlton and and vice versa. And there are tender exchanges between them, you know, and they had, I gather, mediocre sex. I mean, I spoke to Many people who slept with with Warhol, and I've I've counted 13 different people that I can record as having slept with him, which must mean there were at least 26. I can't imagine I tracked down more than 50% of his lovers. You know, that's a decent number of lovers for anyone to have. He was clearly sexual. He may not have been, you know, a a sex fiend, but he was clearly interested in sex. So that story about Andy that was self-propagated, that he was asexual, just clearly doesn't hold up. I do think that after he was shot and almost killed in 1968, his interest in many kinds of sex declined. He, The shooting, the operation after the shooting left him with a giant hernia the size of a rugby ball sticking out from his, his gut. I can't imagine that makes anyone feel particularly sexy. You know, getting undressed with a hernia that big must have been a little bit scary for him and of course for his lovers. But just after that, he, he gets a boyfriend Jed Johnson, who he's with for 12 years, right? That is not the gesture of a non-romantic.
0: No, absolutely not. I mean, one of the early parts of of the Warhol story, which is kind of fascinating, is him stalking Truman Capote. I mean, where do you think that came from? Was that, that a sort of early instinct to this, you know, fascination with celebrity and a kind of different way of being in the world?
1: You know, I think that the fascination with celebrity is somewhat overplayed in our accounts of Warhol. I think most of his interest in in celebrity was, you could say, like Marcel Duchamp's interest in the urinal, right? Warhol's interest in celebrity was not so much for its own sake, I think. I think it was an interest in celebrity as a real powerful art supply for Warhol, the pop artist above all. He was interested in what he could do with American notions of celebrity, I think, more than in celebrity itself. He wasn't your average star stalker. And I think his interest, especially in Truman Capote, comes from Capote's central place in gay culture and in the culture of camp, especially in the 1950s. I mean, you know, one of Capote's most important books, earliest books, called Other Voices, Other Rooms, comes out in 1948 and is really one of the first relatively out gay books so Warhol's interest in Capote must have stemmed from that. And from the fact that Capote was actually quite beautiful in that very early period, I think many gay men would have had a crush on, on Truman Capote at that point. So I think it, it's possible to overemphasize Warhol's interest in Capote or his interest in celebrity in general. You know, he was interested in, in interesting people. And he was interested in how he could make himself more interesting by hanging out with interesting people, by being obsessed with interesting people. But I think the notion of the obsessed Star Stalker was very much part of the persona that Warhol wanted to build for himself. It made him more interesting.
0: It was an art supply,
1: as you say. (laughs) Everything was an art supply for Andy Warhol. That's the kind of scary thing about Andy Warhol. And it left some of his followers feeling really nonplussed and, and angry. It's no fun to be treated as an art supply if you're actually a living, breathing human being. And yet I think that's very much the way Warhol treated a lot of the people that were in the factory.
0: Well, I think you say at at one point when you're writing about Edie Sedgwick and the, the sort of falling out or falling off of their relationship, that like he had a huge tolerance for people to be, you know, crazy and on drugs and so forth. But as long as it was productive.
1: That's right, which is a scary thing. But it's also important to remember that all of these acolytes in the silver factory period at any rate, you know, the fact the period from January 64 to uh, January 68 he didn't really invite them in in any direct way. They kind of showed up in his life. Here was this pop artist who was still in his personal manners fairly conservative in January of 1964. And these speed freaks, these strange people, these neurotics, these lunatics started showing up in his life. And I think he never felt that directly in contact with them. They were, they again were art supplies. They were, they were phenomena he could observe, like observing a suicide or like observing Marilyn Monroe in his art. So I think he always felt a distance from them. And I think it's a mistake to think, especially of Edie Sedgwick, as really a close friend of his. I mean, yes, they were seen out together at night, but that's not how close friendship is formed. I think because they were photographed so much together and written about so much together in the gossip columns, we imagine them as a kind of couple. And in fact, some of the gossip columnists pretended that they were boyfriend and girlfriend. But I think that they really were never all, my impression is that they were never really all that close. They were never best friends. There was never, I think, much exchange of confidences between them. Was he pretty ruthless? That's a really hard question to answer. Certainly a lot of the people that I interviewed who knew him best found him quite the opposite of ruthless, found him ferociously generous. He certainly came to the aid of people who needed it. I mean, even Lou Reed, who had a really serious falling out with with Warhol, saw him as generous in the way he cultivated the Velvet Underground.
0: Did Lou Reed talk to you?
1: No, uh, Lou Reed had died by the time I came to interview him. Oh, This was a problem in writing the book in general. There were many people who I was about to interview who, who ended up dying, sometimes just days after I'd arranged an interview. <laughs> so if I ever suggest that I should interview you, Sam, say no, because being interviewed by Blake Gopnik at times at least seems to be almost fatal.
0: <laughs> the angel of death. I'm sorry, you were saying, but they'd fallen out. You said, but nevertheless, he spoke warmly about him.
1: Yes, I mean, many people who were relatively close to Warhol found him to be intelligent and generous, and a relatively normal human being. There were certainly people who, to this day, are hugely resentful of Warhol. Uh, Paul Morrissey, his his real collaborator on the very late films from the seventies, can't stand even hearing the name Andy Warhol. But I think the majority of people found him a decent and interesting person, clearly an eccentric. There's no way to imagine that he wasn't eccentric. But he certainly wasn't the monster that some poor people have portrayed him as.
0: Now, you mentioned, you know, when we were talking about the way in which he wanted to, you know, make the creation of a persona part of art and dissolve the boundaries between the kind of plastic arts and performance art and so forth, that there was the Fluxus movement, there were various other, you know, it was in the air. How much do you think... I'm trying to find a way of expressing this. He was someone who picked up with his antenna the way the culture, the way the zeitgeist was going and thought, this is how I can have the maximum impact. This is the way it's going and this is the wave I need to ride. And how much was he in a sort of single-minded way pursuing something originary that he absolutely kind of wanted to do in isolation from the culture or was the culture, the material he was working with?
1: Uh, Yes to both, I'm afraid. That is, one of the things I say probably too often in my book is that Warhol's excellence was as much as anything the excellence of kind of supernaturally talented sponge. He absorbed other people's ideas. He absorbed ideas that were in the culture, both in the high culture of fine art and in the popular culture around him, and used them in his own way, transformed them, made them more interesting. So it is true that there was that there was in the world of fine art this interest in dissolving the boundary between art and life. But he did it in a more interesting and complex and profound way than really any of the artists who were doing it. And that happens again and again. I mean, other people were painting Marilyn Monroe before he was. Other people were using commercial products in their art, especially in Britain, of course, before Warhol was. But he sort of always did what he did better than other people did. When he borrowed from someone, he almost always, A, took the borrowing in a new direction, and whatever he was borrowing got transformed and improved, in a sense, in the borrowing.
0: Like T.S. Eliot's line that immature poets imitate and mature poets steal.
1: Yes, something like that. That's also said about Picasso, of course. Yeah. It's also attributed to Picasso. That line bounces Highly around apocryphal. Yes, I can but... tell you that Warhol never said it. It's one of the few things that Warhol never said. <laughs> and most of the things that Warhol is supposed to have said, he never said, in fact. There's even some doubt about the 15 minutes of fame line. I dug into that in ridiculous detail. And there's some evidence that other people said the 15 minutes of fame line before he did. And then he simply picked up on it and turned it into his own line.
0: It was very Warholian. Do you think there was in his art an area of it that that was kind of closest to him? You know, to the to the sort of outsider. You know, you look at a lot of Warhol's stuff, particularly say those films, which are incredibly sort of disengaged, and you think there's not much feeling here. I mean, was he was he sort of cold, or was there some
1: some sort of warmth, or or was the disengagement the the point? Well, he as a person was certainly not cold or disengaged. I've got lots and lots of evidence for him being fairly deeply romantic. At least one person who knew him fairly well, or no, actually more than one, two or three people said that he was probably suffered from some clinical depression. So he could actually be deeply engaged and sad about uh, his own life and the life around him. His diaries are not disengaged. No, no, I mean, it's
0: things. it's the art specifically. I'm just wondering how you read it, Whether he, whether art for him was a way of expressing something or whether he was in another game
1: altogether. Well, I think that the very notion of art as expressive was being called into question at exactly the moment he becomes an important artist. So I think he very deliberately is rejecting the notion of self-expression in art. It's a notion that I'm not fond of at all. I don't even know what it means exactly to self-express. And clearly, Warhol is denying a self that could be expressed. His self-creation is all about, in a sense, calling into question the very notion of a stable self. So his art also calls that into question. So I think the non-expression in his art. The non-expressivity is is definitely part of the point. And it's what, in a sense, he's expressing in the work. So if it's cold, it's very deliberately cold. And it's cold the way Frank Stell abstractions are cold, or Bridget Riley abstractions are cold. That is, it's part of a moment of froideur in the arts.
0: Of the things that he, the subjects he chose, the things that he was interested in, I mean, I, I was very taken by the thing early on you were talking about saying, you know there wouldn't have been tins of Campbell's soup in his house. You know, it would have been his mother's own borscht or whatever. Was there a sort of rationale or a, a meaning in the, the particular things that he chose to use? as I mean, actually, icons is not such a bad word, given his Catholic background and continued
1: Catholic practice. I mean,
0: why did he choose the icons he did, if you like? Well,
1: because they were iconic. Right? It's a sort of circular reason, of course. But the Campbell's soup can had been around for almost 100 years at that point. And it was a kind of obvious thing to choose. It is worth pointing out that it was also a very much a, a sort of camp icon, right? That 19th century, that fin de design was something that everyone in Warhol's world was interested in when he was a commercial artist yet. So it was a kind of obvious thing to choose. And there's a lovely comic essay, a comic column by a columnist by Bennett Cerf, actually, the great publisher who also ran a comic column in the newspapers about the ubiquity of soup as the great American food. So Warhol was really latching onto something that was central in American culture. And he usually did that. There was usually something iconic about the image that he represented, even when he gets involved with his so-called death and disaster paintings, which are deeply emotive and expressive were towards, and powerful. towards the end of his career, weren't they? No, no, those were right smack in the middle of his pop career. These, these are images of things like the um, electric chair, what could be more iconic of American culture in all of its troubling reality than an electric chair and all of its violence, what could be more relevant to American culture than an electric chair. So he was always interested in things that had a kind of obvious resonance, which he could then make more complicated in his art. I think that's one of the the worst canards about Andy Warhol that's still bandied about constantly, is that the art is in some sense superficial and is an art about superficiality. I don't buy that for a minute. Just look at the stuff for any length of time, and it becomes incredibly profound. It's incredibly hard to come to the end of Warhol's greatest work. You look and look and look and there's always something new to say. It's always a different reading of the work. It's like Cezanne in that way, right? Cezanne is this, makes these bizarre paintings that are incredibly hard to tie down conceptually. It's very hard to say what Cezanne was doing except that it was ferociously interesting. And I think that's true of all of Warhol's greatest art. Not of all of his art, because he made some terrible work. But so of all you of say, his greatest
0: Which, which of the stuff do you think that, that survives? I mean, I can't imagine watching a you know 24 hour movie of someone sleeping in a cinema, but which of the works do you think are really important and will live?
1: Well, I actually think that his movie Sleep, oh, five no. <laughs> and a half hours of someone sleeping, but it does feel like 24 hours when you're watching it. I've watched it right through at least three times, maybe four times. And it's it's fabulous. It's incredibly rewarding. It's like sitting in front of Velasquez's Las Meninas for five hours. And in fact, I've looked at uh, Las Meninas for a week and it never exhausted me. I've also watched Warhol's eight-hour movie of the Empire State Building, a totally static camera, just watching the light change over the Empire State Building. And it was completely fascinating. There, There's so much good work. I mean, obviously, the Campbell soup cans are revolutionary in the way they... They really address what it is to make a work of art. And that happens again and again. I mean, the death and disaster pictures, the suicide pictures are just heartbreaking. For the first five years of his career as a pop artist, there's actually very little bad art. Mostly it's exciting conceptually and visually. It's only really in the 70s and 80s when he starts making these vast print portfolios commissioned by various dealers that you get some really empty work. But you know what? Because he declares it this kind of art called business art, because he declares the making of money in art form, all of that art, you could say, is used as an art supply in this quite interesting practice of his called business art. So he gets away with making bad art by transforming it into something else. The way Duchamp gets away with showing a urinal by transforming it into art. You could say that Warhol's worst art is his urinal, and he turns it into important conceptualism.
0: Well, I was going to say, actually, that leads on to one of the questions I wanted to ask is Warhol's attitude to money, because, you know, was money another sort of art supply? I mean, he seems in some ways to have kind of anticipated little the way that people like Jeff Koons and even Damien Hirst sort of treat the value of the work as, as kind of part of its involvement in, in this culture it lives in.
1: Yes, Warhol doesn't just anticipate Damien Hirst, he causes Damien Hirst, I think, and Damien is quite open about that, his interest in Warhol, his Warholism. Yes, I think the price tag is one of the central, sorry to use the phrase art supply again, but one of the central art supplies in Warhol's entire practice. And he realizes, you know, one of the very, very first silk screens he ever makes is a picture of money. The dollar bill is one of the central images that Warhol plays with. So yes, I think that American consumerism, American business really is central to understanding Warhol as a man and as an artist. I mean, Warhol liked money. Most of us like money, but he liked it maybe a little more than many of us. And he made a great deal of it. So by the time he's a pop artist, he's made a lot of money as a commercial artist. And that always means that he wants to recover the success of his commercial art. But it's worth pointing out that pop art was financially quite unsuccessful for a very long time. Warhol took a big hit to his wallet when he became a fine artist. No one in 1961 would have said the way to make a fortune is to become a fine artist. That would have been a nonsensical, it still is a nonsensical move, let me tell you. I'm married to an artist and she'd be the first person to say that if your goal is to make money, you don't become an artist. So it's a mistake. People have always said that Warhol was a sellout and did everything only for money. Most of the things he did actually failed to bring in money. When you declare the act of vacuuming a gallery, a work of art, When that performance is a work of art that you supply to a gallery, clearly your goal is not to make money.
0: (laughs) Though there's an extraordinary detail that you say after Warhol's death, they found like 14,000 bucks in $100 notes in a biscuit tin. (laughs) Yes. And this was like his spare change kitty, was
1: it? Well, it's what he, he would hand out these $100 bills as as petty cash to, to various acolytes and employees when they needed to go buy something. I mean, he was, he was very strange because he was skinflinty. He made his staff take subways whenever possible. The idea that someone would spend money on taxis was a horror to him. But I also have evidence of him paying for at least some of Gerard Malanga's taxis to get all the way home to the Bronx, in the early 60s so there were moments of generosity financial and otherwise and moments of skin flintiness and it's hard to separate them he often would keep money in his boot he did not like the idea of being mugged i guess none of us do but the idea of parting with money under duress was clearly something he was not fond of and how do you think
0: warhol's death i mean you know he died quite young didn't he do you think he was yeah. kind of spent by the end or do you think You know, we would be seeing now, would have been seen at the later years of the 20th century, a kind of flowering of late Warhol that would have been something interesting and
1: different. Yes, it's funny. There have been several shows called the late Warhol. But of course, Warhol never got to be late, except in in a certain funereal sense of the late Warhol. He died when he was awfully young. He was only in his 50s. And he certainly had a lot more in him, I think. I mean, some of the late work, the camouflage paintings, the Rorschach paintings... The Oxidations, which are kind of medium-late. Those are really interesting works of art. And who knows if he wouldn't have gone on to do something awfully exciting. There's not a lot of sign of him being at a loss for ideas. He talked about being at a loss for ideas, but he continued to make interesting art at the same time as he made mediocre art. And then his self-creation continues. I mean, he appears in 1985 on that execrable American show, The Love Boat. And clearly his appearance on The Love Boat is, I was going to say a high point, but maybe it's a low point in his self-creation. He's this just absurd self-caricature when he appears on, on the worst television program possibly in American television of that era. That's all really interesting. It looks as though he's still doing exciting stuff with himself and with his real art supplies, with canvas and paint. I think he might have gone on to, you know, be as great a late artist as Titian was or Rembrandt was.
0: Well, that's a nice and happy note to end on. Blake Gopnik, thank you very much indeed for your time.
1: Thank you, Sam. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it, if you hated it, don't, don't feel you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thanks again for listening and please join us for our next episode.